Fast-paced learning is a must if you want your business to thrive. But how are you supposed to do that when information is coming at you fast and furious in this hyper-connected world? Hear what leadership readiness expert Erica Anderson has to say about fast-paced and high payoff learning next on Business Confidential Now. This is Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hassel-Kelchner, giving you the inside scoop on how to ignite more business success by doing the right things in the right way. Brought to you by Business MO LLC. Erica Anderson helps forward-thinking business leaders prepare for the future as founding partner of Proteus, a coaching, consulting, and training firm that focuses on leadership readiness. Over the past 30 years, Erica has developed a reputation for creating approaches to learning and business building that are tailored to her clients' challenges, goals, and culture. She and her colleagues at Proteus focus uniquely on helping leaders at all levels get ready and stay ready to meet whatever the future might bring. Besides being a consultant and advisor to CEOs and top executives at companies such as NBC Universal, Facebook, Hyatt Hotels Corporation, GE, Hulu, and Madison Square Garden, just to mention a few, Erica also shares her insights and expertise about managing people and creating successful businesses by speaking to corporations, nonprofit groups, and national associations. A prolific author, Erica is one of the most popular leadership bloggers at Forbes.com. She has also written a number of books, the most recent being Be Bad First, Get Good at Things Fast to Stay Ready for the Future. Erica's books and learning guides have been translated into multiple languages, Spanish, Turkish, German, French, Russian, and Chinese. And she's contributed and been quoted in a variety of national publications, including the Harvard Business Review, Wall Street Journal, Fortune, and the New York Times. So it is a wonderful treat to have her with us today. Welcome to Business Confidential Now, Erica. Thank you, Hannah. It's lovely to be here. I am excited to hear about be bad first. I mean, it's the exact opposite of what our mothers told us when we were growing up. Yeah. And it sounds <laughs> counterintuitive for what we expect from business leaders. So please tell me, what does being bad have to do with preparing leaders to lead in the future? Okay, obviously I love this question. I wouldn't have written a whole book about it. I, uh, the reason I called it this, it's part of the learning model we talked about in the book, is uh, we once we get to be grown ups, especially as we get to be real, you know more and more grown ups, thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, we really tend to have a hard time being novices. We like feeling expert. We like feeling good at things. We like feeling like we're in the know. And you know, at the beginning when you were talking about how fast everything's coming at us now and how quickly things are changing, in a way that has never been true before and certainly was not true for previous generations. We have to all get good at being novices again and again and again as new things come at us. And the essence of being a novice is that you're bad. <laughs> you're bad at whatever it is you're a novice at, whether it's you know playing tennis or learning data analytics or you know whatever. Any new skill or knowledge that comes by, you're bad at it. And we have a hard time acknowledging that. And being able to acknowledge that and start from there is one of the key elements of being a great learner. Well, I can understand how it helps learning, but I mean, when somebody's in a leadership position, people are looking to them for guidance, not necessarily answers, but guidance. So how do you kind of reconcile with 
being in charge, being responsible for whether it's the whole company or a division or a startup even, because it, it's a big responsibility regardless of what level of bottom line success you may have achieved at that point with, hey, it's okay to be bad. Uh, again, great question. So think of the best, I, I suspect this is true for you. It's certainly true for me. It's true for everyone I've known. The best leaders I've ever had are not the ones who pretend they know everything, but the ones who actually do know a lot and are willing to say when they don't know. So I'm not proposing that you be terrible at your job. I'm proposing that when you don't know things, that you acknowledge that you're a novice. I, I wrote an article for the Harvard Business Review last year, and uh, it, the title was something like, what to do when you don't know and you're the CEO. And I was talking about it in the article. I was talking about a CEO who had just become the CEO. And it was at a publishing company, and this person had come up through the authorial ranks. He'd been an editor and knew everything there was to know about that part of the business and was actually a good manager and leader. But in his first meeting as the CEO, the person who was in charge of data analytics started to talk, and he realized he really didn't know very much. He didn't know enough about what that person was talking about. And it was kind of an inflection point, a choice point. Should he, like, just pretend that he knows? You know, I'm the CEO. I'm supposed to know everything. Or does he stop the person and say, hey, I'm not very familiar with this. Could you answer a couple of questions for me, or could you go back and explain it more simply? And what I've found is that when leaders are willing to do that, are willing to acknowledge the areas where they're not completely up to speed, first of all, they get the knowledge they need, which is critical. But second, it creates this wonderful environment where the people on their teams are willing to ask the questions that they don't know the answers to so that everybody on the team can then be a better learner as well. Very interesting, very interesting. You know, as I was looking at your book and the table of contents, I noticed that you discuss the trap of competence. Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, that's basically what we're talking about, that we get trapped into wanting to be experts. And, you know, let's say 70 years ago, okay, so it's, you know, 1940, and I'm a pipe fitter, and I'm a newly minted pipe fitter. Probably pipe fitting is going to be pretty much the same in 1970 when I get my gold watch and retire. But that's just not true of any of this anymore. Everyone I know can say, well, I'm who's a grown-up and who's relatively successful can say, I'm great at this. And then we get trapped in that. We get trapped in, okay, these are the things I'm good at. I'm going to rely on them. I'm going to defend them. But that just doesn't work anymore. We have to be willing and able to learn entirely new bodies of knowledge and skills Pretty much on a daily basis. I, I recently was giving a speech on this to the World Bank, and, and uh, I said to the people in the audience, okay, how many of you have a job that is exactly the same job as it was two years ago? And nobody's hand went up, you know? <laughs> Sixty years ago, if I'd asked that question, I bet a lot of pants would have gone up. But now we just we can't get trapped by what we know. We have to – and that's what, you know, as you know, the model in the book. So what I propose – and this is based on a lot of observation, and it seems to line up with current theory, you know, in terms of how the brain works and how people learn, is that people who are great learners have four mental skills, and in the book we call them anew, aspiration, neutral self-awareness, endless curiosity, and willingness to be bad first, which is what we've been talking about so far. But the other three are really important, too. People who are great learners, they can manage their own aspiration. And what I mean by that is most people think, if I don't want to do something, I don't want to do it. There's not much I can do about that. But people who are great learners 
know that they can make themselves want to learn things. And that's really critical because often at work we need to learn new things that we don't particularly want to learn. So it's great to be able to have control over that and to be able to raise your own level of aspiration because we only do the things we want to do. So if you want to learn something new, you have to want to do it. So that's that's kind of what aspiration is about. Neutral self-awareness is people who are great learners, they know where they're starting from. They, if When they go to learn something new, they know how good or how bad they are at it. And most of us are pretty inaccurate. I use... You know, you might notice in the table of contents, I use American Idol as an example. You know, the people who on, when American Idol used to be on, people who thought they were great singers and they were really terrible. And when somebody doesn't know where they're starting from, it's almost impossible to learn. You have to be pretty accurate about your starting point in order to go from there. So that part of the new model is learning how to be neutrally self-aware, how to be accurate about yourself. And then the third one, endless curiosity, I love talking about this because we all have it. All, if you've ever been around kids, you know, if you have kids or have been around kids, they are relentlessly curious. They just want to explore and understand and they ask questions and they drop things and they put them in their mouths and they ask some more questions. But by the time we get to be adults, we get kind of socialized out of that and we, it doesn't seem cool. We don't want to ask those kind of questions and we don't want to, you know, be curious. The great thing is we can re-engage it, and great leaders have re-engaged their curiosity so that they ask those kind of how and why and I wonder questions, which are really jet fuel for learning. So I just want to talk about those first three because we've been sort of focusing on willingness to be bad first, which is the last one and the hardest one, but the other three are important as well. That is a lot to digest there, and I (laughs) I love the way you broke it down, though. And so to be better... At fast-paced learning, are any one of these more important than another? I would say they're all necessary. Um, an example that I use throughout the book is Michelangelo painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And I like, in all my books, I tend to have a through line, a, a metaphor, or a story or something that goes all the way through because I, I think that's helpful to people when they're, when they're reading something to kind of carry something through. And it turns out that he was a perfect example because, and I didn't know this before I started doing the research, but he actually didn't want to paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, but the Pope told him to, so he kind of had to do it. <laughs> and so he had to get his own aspiration up, and there are a lot of great letters about where you can see how he really talked himself through, okay, what would the benefits be to me to do this, and got excited, finally got excited about doing it, and then he said to the Pope, okay, I'll do it. He was extremely neutrally self-aware. He recognized that he wasn't a good painter. He wasn't a good frescoist. So he hired a lot of assistants who could help him learn that. He was enormously curious. I mean, there are a lot of stories about things that he invented during the course of painting the Sistine Chapel, new ways of doing fresco, new ways of uh, creating scaffolding so people could work 80 feet off the floor and not get killed. You know, it just... And he was completely willing to be bad. I mean, in the beginning, he said, I am not a painter. I'm a sculptor and an architect. And there's one letter that he wrote to a friend where he said, I keep calling down to my assistants, come up and help me. I'm no artist. I mean, he was completely willing to be a novice, this guy who was world-renowned even when he started it. So my observation, my experience is that it requires all four. 
Now, some people are better at some things than others. Like I'm, I and most adults are the worst at being bad first. We find that very difficult. But some people, like my husband is a great example. He's pretty good at that. Somehow it doesn't bother him. But he has a hard time with aspiration. He has a hard time remembering that he can get himself to want to do things that he doesn't now want to do. So I think it's kind of like a fingerprint. It's different for everybody, you know. Right, right. So it's okay to stumble forward is what I'm, what I'm hearing. Um, yeah, as not only okay, but necessary. I mean, when in the, in the part of the book where I talk about, okay, how do you be okay with being bad first? It's all about how you talk to yourself. I mean, I talk a lot about self-talk in the course of the book because a lot of this just happens inside your own head. And usually when, we're, when we find ourselves in that position of being a novice and being bad at something, our self-talk is just brutal. I mean, we're saying things to ourselves in our head like, you're an idiot and you're terrible and you'll never be able to do this and everybody looks at you and thinks you're stupid. I mean, we just say all this horrible stuff to ourselves, which is like white noise. It completely uses up all the bandwidth that we would otherwise have for learning. And so what we propose in the book is that the optimal self-talk for being a novice, for being bad first, is to say to yourself, I'm going to be bad at this for a little while because I'm new at it. And that's inevitable. That's just how it is. I'm going to be bad. And I bet I can get good at this because I've gotten good at a lot of things. And when you have that balanced self-talk, I'm going to be bad right now, and then I bet I can get good, it's like uh, the the – all the white noise, all the shh in your head just kind of starts to evaporate, and you have the man with to learn. I, I tell a story in the book about, so I always try and do this myself, and last year at the beginning of 2016, I decided that I wanted to get good at speaking Spanish. I'd uh, taken Spanish in high school, I knew a little tiny bit, but I really wanted to get fluent. So one of the things I did, one of our consultants speaks Spanish, English, Portuguese, and French, tremendously jealous of her, but I said, her name's Vanessa, I said, Vanessa, could we start having once or twice a month half-hour phone conversations in Spanish? And we'll speak Spanish, you'll learn about the business, and I'll improve my Spanish. And before the first conversation, she said, sure. Before the first conversation, I was so nervous, and my brain was telling me, oh, you're going to be bad, and it's going to be embarrassing, and you're her boss, you should be good, and all this stuff. So I went, okay, that's not what I want to say to myself. What I want to say to myself is, I'm going to be bad at this right now because I'm just starting to really try and learn it. And I bet I can get good. I'm pretty good at getting good at things. And it was such a tremendous relief. The noise in my head really, really went down. And it still wasn't super easy. I still felt a little embarrassed. But even by the end of that first half-hour call, I could feel myself starting to get better. And now, a year and a half later, I can actually speak pretty good Spanish. So it's very empirically practical, all this stuff that I talk about in the book. Well, you know, it's really interesting, this example that, that you just gave about you wanting to get better at Spanish and, and your, your colleague, Vanessa. Let me ask you this. Did you find that Vanessa was trying hard to help you learn? Oh, tremendously hard. You know, that that wasn't the issue. I always knew she would be super supportive and super helpful. It was what was going on in my head that was likely to be the problem. We get in our own way much more than other people get in our way. Yeah, I, I understand. We we talk to ourselves internally in a way we would not speak to our best friend at all. Oh, my God. I'm so glad you said that. We wouldn't speak to anybody. I mean, I was just last week, um, three times a year, two colleagues and I do this wonderful week-long leadership training session for a bunch of high potential mid-level women 
had a lot of conversations about that. I mean, we speak to ourselves inside our own heads in ways that if a third party talked to us that way, we would no longer be their friends. We would just completely excise them from our lives. So a lot of being a good learner is learning to manage that so that we speak to ourselves in more supportive and accurate ways. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, but I, but I think there's an added benefit. I mean, besides quieting the white noise, as you put it, in your own head, by asking if Vanessa to help you, you actually increased her engagement and the teamwork between you to a whole nother level that wouldn't have happened in any other way. Oh, that's a wonderful point. I think that's exactly right. And it's a version of what I was talking about before with the CEO that like when the, this was based on a real thing, when the CEO asked his data person, can you explain this to me? People love being asked to share their expertise and you're absolutely right. It creates a level of transparency and teamwork and real collaboration that otherwise wouldn't happen if the leader is like, no, I'm good. I, I know everything, you know? Right, exactly. But it's true because it makes their work more meaningful. It's like, yes, I yeah. make a difference. I can help the yeah. CEO understand and then they appreciate the value of what I bring to the party and everybody moves ahead and especially the organization. So I, I love that example. And your work Absolutely. with leaders, have you seen that, you know, of these four skills, the aspiration, neutral, self-awareness, curiosity, and of course, the willingness to be bad, that any one is more of a stumbling block than others? I understand there's individual fingerprints, but is there one that pops up more often than the rest? Oh, I think the last one. I think especially when you get to a point very senior, I mean, most of the people I work with are as a coach and even when I'm doing group stuff are C-level people and you know they're in their 40s, 50s, 60s they're very intelligent, highly educated very you know they've done great things with their career that they're at this high level in their company it's really hard for a lot of them to just do exactly what you and I started talking about from the very beginning to say wow I'm, I don't I'm not familiar with this or I have a lot to learn in this area or, you know because they think they're supposed to know everything so, yes, I think that's the hardest one for most people. Okay. All right. You have just amazing background. You've written multiple books, not just the, the one we're talking about now, Be Bad First, but you've written Leading So People Will Follow, Being Strategic, Plan for Success, Growing Great Employees. Why the change in focus on the need for fast-paced learning in organizations and the impetus to write Be Bad First, Get Good at Things Fast to Stay Ready for the Future? <laughs> so... Um, I, you, you're asking great questions. I love these questions. So, um, the, you know, the first book I wrote, Growing Great Employees, was How to Be a Good Manager of People. The second one, Being Strategic, was really what does it mean to be strategic and how do you think and act in a way that helps you solve problems large and small. And then the third one was how do you, it's called Leading So People Will Follow. How do you lead so people will follow you? And as as I, you know, I, I've, I started this company almost 30 years ago and we teach and train and consult and and over the course of all that time and especially when Leading So People Follow came out, which is about five years ago, I really noticed that even though we offer good, we think, really good, simple, powerful, skill-based learning to leaders and managers, I noticed that, you know, some people were able to take advantage of it and some weren't. And especially after Leading So People Follow came out, I would do all these interviews, like you and I are doing an interview. And uh, people would say, well, you know, our leaders, can you really become a leader? Don't you have to be born a leader? And I'd be like, 
well, no, and I wouldn't have written this book if I thought that, you know. But so then they'd say, well, how do you become a good leader? And I found myself talking about these four things, you know, aspiration, neutral self-awareness, endless curiosity, willingness to be bad first. And I realized, and I bounced it off my colleagues, and we realized we were seeing this over and over again. And so at that, that point, I started doing some research in neuroscience and psychology, and it all lined up with what we were seeing, which is that these four things are critical to learning. And at the same time that this was happening, and I realized that it, under, it was the underpinning of a lot of our approach to how we were teaching people these skills, everything, as you know, as we all know, just I noticed everything speeding up, speeding up, speeding up. And one of the, one of the points that made me really decide to write this book is I read a study about millennials, you know, people who are now 20 to 35, basically. And it said in this study that most millennials, that the average millennial thinks he or she will have 11 jobs in the course of their career. Not just different versions of the same job, 11 different jobs. That was the average number they got. (laughs) And that they also think the job they have now, and I love this, the job they have now will not exist by the time they're ready to retire. And that was such an aha for me. It's like, wow, that, I think both of those things are probably true. This is a different world we live in now in terms of learning and the capability to learn that we're going to have to have in order to continue to thrive through this level of change, which will only continue to speed up. So that's why I turned my attention in this direction. Well, I'm glad you did because some people could say some of our economic ills just generally, you know, in a macro sense, not just micro within an organization, but macro could be attributed to that. Because over the last 20, 30 years, as more and more jobs got exported, you know, the skill set of those jobs or the people that held those jobs weren't being replaced with something better. And yeah. so as a result, they feel disenfranchised and creates all kinds of other um, disenfranchisement, which is really unfortunate, uh, totally unfortunate. That's exactly right. And there are jobs in this new economy going begging that um, people just don't know how to learn what they need to learn. Also, you know, we're not supporting them to learn those things. But that's a whole other thing. But, you know, I just read the other day that there are now three, to- three or four times as many jobs in the solar industry as there are in the coal industry. And, you know, that's something people could learn. But we're not that good at learning, and we're not being helped to learn. Well, as you said, the aspiration, wanting to learn. It's just like when yeah. email first came out. Oh, I don't need email. I have my secretary, and <laughs> yeah, exactly. they'll, they'll take a memo. It's like, you know, that was like the dark ages now. Exactly. Uh, Erica, is there a difference between fast-paced learning and high-payoff learning? I've, I've seen that phrase used in some of your work as well. Is there a distinction between that fast-paced learning and high-payoff learning? Um, they... they both are necessary, but they are. We do mean two two different things by them. So fast-paced learning is just being able to learn quickly and continuously, and that's what those four skills are about. Because if you're really good at, you know, the four mental skills we've been talking about, then you're going to be able to acquire new things quickly, new skills quickly. It lowers your barriers to learning. High payoff learning. The reason we coined that phrase is because a lot of people say, "Oh no, no, no! I'm good at learning. I like to learn." But what they mean is they like to take in information because that's not very confronting. I mean, you can read an article, you can watch a TV show. Yeah, oh, I found out about, you know, French wine. But high payoff learning is the kind of learning that allows you to behave differently. And that's where it gets hard because that's when you have to be curious and you have to be willing to be a novice and, 
requires more aspiration. So we wanted to make the distinction between just taking in information, which all of us do all the time and isn't that hard, and actually learning new skills, learning to behave differently, which is high payoff because it then allows you to behave differently. You can do things that you couldn't do before. Well, that's wonderful, and that's one reason why I was dying to have you on the show because we like to focus on issues that are hiding in plain view that people just don't know because they don't Mm. know what they don't know so that they can learn from experts like you and then behave differently to improve their bottom line so that it all just fits together beautifully. I I really love that. Okay. You've got an impressive background. I think that goes without saying anybody that heard me brag about you during the introduction can see that. And I'm just curious, who has or what has inspired and influenced you in your business journey? You've built an amazing business over the course of 30 years. Do you have a single influencer that you could share with us in the few minutes we have left? Yes. my The person I always give props to is my dad for all a bunch of reasons. He was just such a wonderful, wonderful human being. The two things I always uh, focus most on or think most of about him were one that he was the single most curious person I've ever known. And I feel like my appreciation of the importance of curiosity as jet fuel for learning and as something that just moves through your life largely as a result of having experienced my dad growing up just, he was just fascinated by everything. He was childlike in his curiosity. I mean, we would go on vacation and we'd be at a, you know, diner in some little town and South Dakota, and he'd start talking to the waitress, and it would turn out that she and her husband had a farm, and wow, really, what are you growing? Wow, what's it like to be a waitress and also be running a farm? Do your kids work on the farm? He really cared, and he, you know, he just, throughout his life, just found out fascinating information every day, and stuff that he could use to, you know, he was a lawyer, and he always talked about how the things that he found out from the ordinary people that he asked all these questions to really helped him in his work, really helped him support his clients. So that was fantastic. And then the other thing is he just was absolutely unconditional in his belief in me and in my ability to, you know, fulfill my dreams. And it wasn't until I was a grown-up and realized that he was absolutely a feminist. You know, he completely, I'm one of four kids, two boys, two girls. He treated us all the same in terms of our ability to fulfill our dreams. And, and it also helped me see how having someone who really has faith in your capability is just such a critical element. And it helped me as a parent, and it has helped me dramatically as a leader, perhaps thousands of leaders over the last 30 years, how important that is to really have faith in your people's potential and to demonstrate that faith. So, my dad. Wonderful. So empowering to have someone like that in your corner that basically says you can be anything you want to be. And that's supportive. That's supportive. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Erica. Uh, It's been great to hear your thoughts and insights about fast-paced learning and how it translates also into into high-payoff learning if we can do it right. Of course, we're going to have a link to your book, Be Bad First, Get Good at Things Fast to Stay Ready for the Future on your episode page at here at businessconfidentialradio.com. That's businessconfidentialradio.com for people that are trying to jot that down. And thank you for all you do to help make organizations more successful. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. Thank you for joining me today. You can get more information about today's guest and the show notes on our website, businessconfidentialradio.com. And connect with me on social media. I'd love to hear from you and stay in touch.
Next week, Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hazel-Kelchner will be back with more business information and inside scoop you need to succeed in your business. Till then, 